Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. A company is there to cater not only to the shareholders, but it's there to cater to society. It's there to cater to employees. I think we have to really see that there is a generation emerging that questions the whole idea that a company should be for profit. The real issue in the social sector is that there is a certain judgment when it comes to profit. There's a certain idea that people who do good shouldn't be the ones who then make a lot of money with it. Whereas I feel there shouldn't be a problem with this because someone who really works hard and is really good should make money with it. I'm very pleased today to introduce Christian Bush, Associate Director and Research Fellow at Innovation and Co-Creation Lab at the London School of Economics. There he works with governments, enterprises and social enterprises to develop scalable, inclusive business models. Christian's research focuses on entrepreneurship, social innovation, social networks and business model innovation. Christian is also co-founder of Sandbox, a global accelerator for young innovators. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to uh, inspiring social entrepreneurs today. And um, you, you, you wear various hats in, in the uh, social innovation and uh, social entrepreneurial areas. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the work that you do and the background to the Innovation and Co-Creation Lab and Sandbox? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm passionate about building platforms for inspiring people to make ideas happen. So uh, I think there's nothing cooler than to see that someone who comes with an idea um, actually puts that into practice and doesn't have any excuse to not put it into practice. So I think building the ecosystem around um, this is, is uh, what I enjoy doing. So Sandbox a few years ago, together with uh, four co-founders, we set up in order to help uh, interesting young people in different fields, so designers, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, to bring their ideas to the next level, to build meaningful relationships with each other across fields and to become role models in whatever they do. And so now in 20 countries around the world, we have local ambassadors. So people who locally identify the most interesting designers, artists, social entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who already made a local impact. And then we bring them into our community and help them um, kind of get to a global level and, and have a global impact. And out of this, then, um, some f- few years ago, my reflective side was kicked in where um, I wanted to understand a bit deeper, okay, what, what are we actually doing? Like, how do these networks actually work? Um, how can we actually understand how impact is scaled um, versus just kind of having some anecdotal ideas about it, but not really being sure what actually the evidence is behind it? Um, that's why I um, did a PhD on social enterprises, particularly how they use networks to scale and to, to have more impact. And that's how then I started at the LSE. Um, I taught around entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and then joined the innovation lab here where we are looking into business model innovation, particularly in developing countries, particularly looking into how can we help enterprises, social enterprises that are really interesting in their efforts, but that now want to take the next step towards um, getting it to, to the next stage. Focus on Sandbox for a moment. I mean, it sounds like it's quite a wide range of different participants. Do you have a sense that the kind of challenges that social entrepreneurs face are, are different maybe than a, an artist or a, you know, a technologist generally, that having to mix the uh, business side of things and the social side of things together? 
You know, it's interesting, Fergal, because I feel um, a lot of, or actually most of the sandboxers we um, select into the community are in a way what, what I would probably call impact innovators. So people who in their respective fields care deeply to both um, build a sustainable model, but also to have a social impact and be responsible what they do. Um, so I feel it's probably shifting a bit. I mean, um, the social entrepreneurs within Sandbox, for example, um, they are much, much closer to the designers and artists that think responsibly than they are to other entrepreneurs in the field that are probably not that concerned about society. So I feel um, what brings them together in the end um, is this desire to combine meaning and profit and to really say, okay, how can we do something with our lives that is not restricted to a career structure or a certain career track, rather where we put meaning to, to what we do. Um, and I feel that the challenges... Um, it's funny because in the end, when you when you break them down, um, I feel it's it's usually very very similar challenges. I mean, it's it's you know the particular industries have particularly industries challenges, but I feel in the end it breaks a lot down to do you have a community of of people around you who really support you emotionally? I mean, it's I feel perseverance and grit is 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 the one um, kind of challenge for for most people when you you know um, particularly when you face a situation where you have to reconcile financial and social, where you want to build sustainable models while somehow um, um, having having an impact. Um, so I feel um, this 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 idea that you actually have people around you who believe in you and who believe in your craziness. I feel that's the most important thing. So I think a, a quote um, that I will never forget uh, from a social entrepreneur in in New York um, about Sandbox actually um, was. Actually, I think the reason why we built it in the first place, which was that he said that Sandbox is the one place where he doesn't feel crazy anymore. Um, and I think that is the point when you have people who really want to build exciting things that have meaning, that help society. Usually people around you might think you're slightly crazy. Um, but if you then build friendships with people who think similarly crazy, I think that's the most important part. Um, that even if you get to the point where you might pivot or or where you might fail that you understand that if you do a project with 22 um you will probably do a much more exciting project with 28 but the relationships you build now um the types of of of, of kind of learnings you build now will be the ones that will make it even more interesting in the future what is the scale of sandbox i mean how do you measure its impact at the moment in terms of members and 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 and, and how you know the impact it's having the interesting thing about Sandbox is it's it's a very decentralized organization. So uh, we have in around uh, 20 locations now in, I think, 15 countries, local ambassadors. So um, people who locally recruit people um, to become members of the local community. So we have around, I think, 1,200 members in these different local communities from Beijing to Nairobi to Zurich, where we have um, a lot of local events, um, where we uh, bring people together from across fields, where we uh, bring them together with mentors, um, with investors and others. Um, and then we have uh, global platforms where they get access to resources and, um, and, and the global community. So when, we, when you travel from Beijing to uh, London, you have people on the ground who have a similar mindset with whom you can collaborate, with whom you can play and so on. And I feel the impact of Sandbox is probably on two levels. The, the first level is kind of the concrete level in terms of that there's a lot of collaborations and a lot of um, things, you know, facilitated investments and, and these kind of things. But I think we never took them that, um, well, serious, we took them, but we didn't put it at the forefront because we feel what is much more important is um, what we talked about earlier, the whole behavioral 
um, assistance or the whole support ecosystem you have so that when you take a 22-year-old who has big ideas and then makes them happen within this community, that then after three years, once they build it, um, a lot of times you would hear things that they couldn't have done it without Sandbox. And I feel this whole idea that it is not only the one investment that was facilitated or the one connection that is facilitated, but it is this whole ecosystem where they draw on constantly, um, particularly when it comes to emotional support, when it comes to uh, mentorship and, and peer-to-peer support. Um, I think um, concretely um, in these kind of local hubs, um, what we measure is um, which type of um, collaborations do we see. So that's everything from, um, as, as just mentioned, kind of investments to um, people setting up companies together to um, how they actually then um, uh, increase their, their uh, respective individual impacts. And then on the global level, um, as an organization, what we look into is uh, all these questions in terms of how many, um, how much content, um, how much exposure could we give them, and, and so on. So it's different metrics, uh, but I feel the most important thing for us is that you have 1,200 people around the world who build real deep friendships with each other, which will help them for the rest of their life. What have you learned about building a network like this? I suppose it's it's in part virtual, but there's also a strong physical dimension where you have different offices and so forth. How important is it to have a physical presence? And are there one or two other key elements necessary to make a network like this work? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I believe it's, it's really the interplay between offline and online where the physical presence is the absolute core. I mean, I think when you look at how Sandbox started, we literally started with informal dinners in Zurich, then in London, then other cities where people who were excited and exciting came together, shared their ideas, and then we after and after tried to continue these conversations online. And then um, now you have this kind of interaction where you have an event in Nairobi, then people share their insights from there um, globally, and then people globally, again, reconnect to, to the physical. So I think in terms of key learnings, there's, there's, there's so many key learnings. Um, so it's probably too, too short a call to, to discuss them all. But I feel um, the, the first one is really um, about do we have the same value frame or do we have the same... Um, understanding of why we're here. So do we have a common purpose? And I feel when you look at a community like Sandbox, where we looked at diversity, where we said we want to have people from different fields that help accelerate serendipity in terms of diversity, that then, you know, a designer has an idea and then meets the entrepreneur who actually has the business mind to it and meets the investor who actually has the money for it. Um, so you, you have these kind of positive coincidences that happen more often because you have this diversity of people, but then also you need a certain common framework that allows you to trust people. And I feel usually common frameworks, you know, nation states or, or other things are based on ethnicity, they're based on background, they're based on the social graphs of the people around you. Whereas I feel that communities like Sandbox are based on similar ambitions, similar values. And so I feel the core challenge for us over the years was how do we make sure that the application process, as well as the routines within how we organize events, how people interact with each other, that this is very strongly based on reciprocity, that is based on that people have similar ambitions, even though they're in very different fields, and and so on. So what we have, for example, is a Sandbox Codex, where when you become a member, you have to sign kind of the, the, the principles you commit to. And the principles you commit to is um, we as Sandbox um, say we commit to um, selecting the people who feel to be outstanding and who somehow are um, kind of respected for their character and, and, and so on. But 
the member itself also has to commit to thinking about the other members first, thinking about how they can really contribute to the community and so on. So to really have a certain understanding that this is much more than just a network. It's about building a real community where people care for each other. And I think that was probably the most important learning. When I look at most communities in the world, um, I think it's very transactional. It's very much like, okay, here's an investment, um, do something with it, and then come back once you did something with it. Whereas Sandbox is about, okay, we have a certain purpose here while we are here. We help each other. We grow with each other. And then, I mean, imagine how the world looks like when in, in, in 30, 40 years, world leaders didn't meet over their positions, but they met over their passions and ideas when they were in the 20s. So this kind of level of trust which you have is completely different. Right, right. That's interesting. And in, in terms of putting it the other way around, I suppose, looking at the challenge for for the, the, the social innovator, as it were, you know, what, what is it that they need? I mean, what have you learned about the kinds of things that they need? I mean, clearly there's a network there and there's many, many different elements. But if you had to single out one or two uh, key aspects that are most important. You know, it's interesting because I feel a lot of people... Um, when you talk to them, and particularly also the work we do at the LSE, where, you, where we do a lot of kind of interviews with people and we talk with a lot of people, it feels that people usually cite things like lack of money or lack of resources and, and so on. And I feel, yes, that's what I would intuitively say as a person, if I'm, and that's what I would say, you know, when you look at an enterprise like Sandbox, of course, resources were always a challenge. But I feel that the most interesting people around us are usually the ones where resources come because they are so interesting and where resources come because their idea and their, the people they unite around them um, are, are interesting enough. So I feel um, what the real um, kind of qualifier I feel is of really interesting people is having this grit, this perseverance, and then what they need is having people with similar mindsets that really support them and tell them each two weeks, look, this is still amazing and this is exciting because you know, the, as an interesting person and particularly as a social innovator that tries to, you know, face this complex um, kind of tension between social and financial and building a sustainable model while somehow um, 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 having also financial sense is extremely, extremely difficult. So I feel you um, need people around you that think similarly big and that tell you from time to time that you are not crazy. Um, but that you actually have a really good idea there that you just need time to, to develop it. So I feel that the most important thing is really building meaningful relationships with people that are like-minded, which is extremely difficult because when you look at people in different fields particularly, look at social innovators in technology, look at social innovators in, uh, in, in other areas, when you think really big particularly, then uh, people in your field might not be as similarly minded as people in other fields who think similarly big. So I feel that's why these kind of communities also, when you think about communities like Unreasonable Institute or Starting Block, are so important because they make people feel that what they do makes actual sense. Um, so that's the first part, I think, the emotional support part. Um, the second part is exactly these kind of things. How do you now get the right resources in place? And I feel in terms of resources, particularly the right team, in terms of the right co-founders, um, I've seen a lot, a lot of people who um, failed because they were not able to build a team not only based on, oh, I like you, or based on, oh, you're my brother, or based on, um, we somehow did the same degree, but based on complementarity in skill sets as well as in character. And I feel 
Um, what 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 a lot of times happens is, but I mean, a lot of the, the the workshops we do here, for example, is around team building, and I think where a lot of the team building goes wrong is that you put people with similar skill sets together, but then you don't see that one of them might be a visionary and the other one as well. And if you have two visionaries, that's maybe a bit too much. Maybe you need an executor who actually can complement this visionary. So look at uh, the interesting kind of um, um, social innovators around the world. Usually they were clever enough if they were visionaries to get some executors on board, if they were executors to get some visionaries on board. So really kind of understanding the, the, the constellation of team and then getting access to these people. And I feel, again, these people usually are not that easy to be found and convinced. So I feel, again, this is why it's so important to be immersed in these type of communities. Yeah, it's a great focus and the network. And as you say, bringing p- people together, you know, with, with similar values and, and the shared outlook. Very powerful indeed. What would you say for, you know, social entrepreneurs that, you know, for one reason or another, aren't part of a specific network that's been set up and so forth? like anyone they're trying to put it together themselves with something like that together what would you say to a social innovator who hadn't access to sandbox to get some of the advantages or to help them in that way i feel the first thing is to to really kind of try to immerse in the ecosystem in the sense of trying to find out which are the social enterprises around me what are the social enterprises that are really interesting and then you know the the beauty for good or bad, of the social sector and particularly social enterprises, you always need a helping hand. So um, I feel it's it's a lot about becoming aware of what your real passion is and what you really want to do, um, which is not always easy and which takes time and which in the end is a trial and error process and which is even more important than to, to get that practical experience. So I would say um, just contacting, being really blunt, um, meeting social innovators at conferences or um, at um, spaces like the Hub Westminster or, or other spaces where you have a certain serendipitous element. So you literally go there, um, you think about why you're interesting for these type of, of organizations, getting in touch, talking with them, presenting your ideas. And then I feel the, 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 the most interesting thing is that whenever you have an idea, I mean, there's usually people around who have similar ideas or who might be have even more exciting ideas. So I feel the most important thing is first to, to get a bit of hands-on experience with people who, 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 who are really interesting, um, to kind of like maybe work with them a few, few hours per week. I get a bit of insights in terms of who are the interesting people around, um, getting in touch with, with some of the potential investors around. Um, and again, I would do that less with a focus on pitching an idea, more with a focus on building relationships. Because again, I think the idea, particularly as a young person, I mean, when I remember back when Sandbox itself, for example, was an idea, we were all 24, we were all really, really, uh, how would you call it, probably very naive, um, and, and so on. So we, we, we basically, um, we were pitching a lot the idea, but I think what was paying off much more was we were much more focused on actually building relationships with people um, who were excited about us as people versus the idea itself only. And I think that's the, the most important thing to, um, to to build relationships early on. Um, going to these co-working spaces like Hub Westminster, we have a lot of events on where it's very easy to get in touch with people. Um, and then either talking directly about the ideas or seeing how you can get involved as a, you know, as a, as a kind of intern type uh, person a few days a week or, or something like this. So really immersing in the ecosystem. I think everything else comes from, from these relationships then. 
Good advice. Thank you. Um, shifting gear a little bit, I mean, clearly these are some of the challenges in the early stages, you know, when you're on your own, you have an idea, you don't really know whether it's realistic or not, whether other people are doing it, if you've got the skills and so forth. Now, clearly, as, as a social enterprise grows or as a, the idea takes off, there are different series of challenges. What about scaling? Um, clearly, it's a, a, a big challenge. What have you learned about uh, scaling and insights into how, how to do that? It's, it's an interesting question because I feel um, scale obviously is the biggest or non-scale is the biggest issue in the social sector that um, nobody really, when you look at the biggest or the most interesting organizations in the world, it's unfortunately usually not social enterprises because usually they stay relatively local or the ones that scale at some point somehow have a mission drift or, or other challenges. Um, so I feel one of the organizations, to, to give an example, that um, did a lot of things very well and that has a lot of interesting learnings is it's called R-Labs in uh, South Africa. And so R-Labs um, has a very interesting model. It's basically former drug addicts who said, we don't trust the government, we don't trust um, um, everyone el anyone else apart from each other. So they developed a mobile phone solution in the townships of Cape Town where they helped each other via mobile texts to combat and to, to kind of get out of, of, of drug issues. And then they developed that into a social media training. They said, well, we have two computers around here. Let's use them and let's try to figure out how we can use Facebook to sell the things out of the townships. And then they built that up into an incubator where they said, well, now that we're sitting here and that we have more and more competencies to actually um, have people involved and build their own IT platforms and so on, why don't we make an incubator of it? So now it's a, it's a social media place with an incubator, with a training center, with an academy. And this now scaled into 15 different countries from out of South Africa into Kenya, into a lot of other different countries, including the UK, including Portugal. So the reason why this is so interesting is A, that it's kind of in a way um, coming from the East into the West. So it's a very low um, kind of um, low uh, technology solution with a very high impact in the sense that it's very easy to adopt. And I feel that is one of the key learnings also with, with a lot of other organizations in the world that if a solution or an idea is easy to be taken over by local champions, that's one of the things that makes dissemination much easier and, and scale much easier. So one thing they did pretty well is to say, let's find local champions, local people in local communities that are already well-connected, that have the local trust. And instead of us coming in now and trying to build the relationships ourselves, let's work with this one person or with these two people who have all this trust established already, let them build it up, Let's have them a certain entrepreneurial space for themselves, and let's put a global framework on that. So in, in a way, it's a kind of social franchising approach where you say, we have a global framework, we have a global value frame, but then we have locals coming in who can bring in their own ideas, how it works out in the local context, who bring in local resources from, from people around, and so on. So I feel the first aspect is really about having local champions um, and and who get real idea ownership? I feel that's kind of the the first aspect that is that is that is really important for it. The second is really an idea that is easy to grasp. Um, in the sense of if an idea is too complex, it's very hard, particularly for people um, in in different contexts, to um, translate this idea into the local context to get ownership um, and particularly to to get buy-in from from people around it. And so it's it's really kind of breaking that idea down. Um, and then I think all the other aspects, such as um, resources and everything else, I would really say um, I would always try to not think too centralized. So I would not necessarily think in terms of 
how to get bigger investments, how to get centralized resources. I would think about how can we decentralize our model so that we bring in as many local resources as possible. Look at something like R-Labs, look at something like Sandbox, look at something like TEDx. All these different types of forms of social innovation models work under the premise that the local center puts some resources in, but most of the resources come from the locals. Most of the ideas come from the locals, and then the global center does the kind of umbrella for it. The beauty of this is that, on the one hand, you can scale much faster because you don't have to build up everything locally yourself, and B, you also have people much more bought in and motivated because they can bring in their ideas. Right, that's very interesting. As you say, this is a kind of emerging model which gets that decentralized way of growing and bringing in people with motivation and skills and, 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 and ideas as well. Um, what would you say are some of the key challenges that are there in terms of scaling? I mean, clearly, finance and resources is, is one because for many social enterprises, you know, operating on quite low margins and so forth. Are, are there two or three uh, particular issues that you think are the biggest ones for social entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's certainly, um, it's interesting, we just had a, um, a, a longer kind of uh, detailed um, examination with, I don't know if you, if you come across, the, the International Center for Social Franchising. So what they do is they help um, social ventures around the world to scale their models. And uh, the idea was, okay, let's try to figure out what are the kind of barriers for organizations to scale and how did organizations like Oxfam or others scale to that big level. And um, so I feel when, when, when being in these discussions where you had a lot of interesting social enterprises, most of them scaled, one thing that came up the whole time was the, 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 the challenge of human resources, the challenge of how do we get the best people on board if we don't have proper um, career structures, if we don't have um, necessarily the, the skill sets to identify them locally in these contexts we want to grow into, and so on. So I feel one of the key challenges was really how do we find people um, that, that are incentivized enough to be part of, of growing this, this venture, um, where in the traditional financial sector you would have a lot of equity incentives or you would have uh, financial incentives or, or other types of incentives. So I feel um, one of the things there, um, which a development I find really interesting at the moment is looking at organizations like On Purpose that try to build career structures in parallel to the social sector to say, if you have an organization, a social organization, um, we know that you probably don't have the best training programs for your employees because you first need to get to a certain level and so on. So we take over the training for you. We help you build up um, a certain kind of personnel pool, and then um, you can you can scale um, easier and faster. Um, and I feel the, the kind of issue, particularly when you work on a um, in a micro franchising uh, approach, which which is obviously the approach in most developing countries, um, um, social ventures grow and which um, I guess in the West we will see more and more as well, um, it's really how do I identify the right local champion, the right local micro-entrepreneur um, to take my um, services or my business model um, to to this local level or to the next level. Um, and so I feel that was kind of the, the first one, really selecting the right people um, to come on board, but also how to incentivize them then to stay on board. And then the second one, I think, comes really to sustainability in terms of um, a lot of the initiatives in the social sector um, over the last years that I'm aware of um, either failed or they um, are somehow um, grant financed or financed in certain ways that they have more an incentive to cater towards 
um, sustaining a certain status quo than to actually scale it and to actually move forward. That is obviously a question of um, how they are financed. So if you're grant dependent, you obviously don't have a lot of um, um, different options how to move forward and so on. So I feel the issue of financing um, in the sense not that the financing is not there, but that maybe the vehicles by which it comes are not the, the ideal ones. So I feel I put a lot of hope in these different types of new um, well, BCOP was, 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 was one of the first tries, but then a kind of new types of models on the financial side where you will then be more creative also in terms of how you can um, incentivize people, how, how you can grow more flexibly and, and so on. Right. That's very interesting. A very detailed structural analysis of the, of the challenges scaling. And I just wonder also, um, you do see a proliferation in some areas of social, uh, organizations. And it's something I think has been noted that you don't see so much, you know, mergers and acquisitions, as it were, or, you know, uh, joining together of social enterprises and people have a tendency to want to set up their own and, and so forth. I mean, what are your thoughts around that kind of area? I'm 100% with you there. I think one of the biggest issues in the social sector is ego. Um, I feel um, an ego not necessarily in the negative sense. I think ego in the sense of that people want to be the ones who started it. They want to be the ones who are um, the, behind something um, that that is that is that is kind of um, out there that people talk about. I feel that is um, more so with really interesting social enterprises because um, when you think about um, kind of, my, my example would always be when you think about business versus politics. Why would someone go into politics if you have the problem that in politics the structures are usually that you are not well paid and so on, so on, so on. And, and one of the features then a lot of times becomes, well, it is, it is people who enjoy having a certain power position or having a certain position of where they can be very visible and, and so on. And I feel in the social sector, when it comes to social enterprises that become bigger, I feel a lot of times there's a certain idea of um, wanting to be very visible and, and wanting to be the one who drives something, which then obviously when you have two people who have very similar ideas and you um, suggest that why don't you put them together and then say you, you, you know, you co-found this or whatever, um, there is a certain drive that, that, that kind of keeps them away from, from doing that. I feel that's very, very unhealthy. Um, for the sector itself. Um, I think also in, in general, um, obviously for, for very obvious reasons, there, um, there, there can, um, there, there is a certain limit to scale. Um, um, the, 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 the ones we already discussed are the obvious ones, but I think there's also these kind of um, questions that if you have something like um, a social innovation, which by definition is a problem, an issue, which a lot of times is local, right? So it's kind of a, if you if you have a, a local solution to to a drug problem uh, uh, epidemia, then uh, you basically have a local solution to that. And then trying to adapt that solution for the global market in a way um, is harder than if you develop a certain product which is more focused on kind of like a, a global type type market. And um, so I feel putting it differently, if you have social enterprises that begin very locally focused, I feel a lot of times it's very hard for them to then um, go uh, to, to the global level or um, even more so, I feel a lot of uh, social entrepreneurs uh, don't want to scale at all because you um, actually found a solution to the local problem and that's actually um, something to be content about and maybe it is. Um, so I think this whole question around scaling is also in the end the normative question 
why would we actually need everyone to scale? Or is it maybe better to have a lot of local solutions and keep them local? So I think it's also a, a kind of normative question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very interesting. In terms of relationships with, uh, I mean, social entrepreneurs. I guess it's a pretty broad church. There's different kinds of organisations. There's for profit and non profit, and there's just different structures and models and things. How important is profit? And how important is it that social entrepreneurs? can uh, have have the right attitude towards profit and i suppose sales and marketing as well because i've talked to social entrepreneurs and and they're doing great things but oftentimes they 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 seem to fall into one of two groups either they're doing very well on the social impact but maybe less well on on the sustainable finance side or the other <laughs> that they're 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 having uh, they're they're doing well profitably but uh, on the profit side but maybe less social impact it's actually an area i'm very passionate about and uh a lot of our work around impact organizations goes exactly into that question. How do we get people to not only think about social impact, but to think about how do we actually sustain that social impact? And sustaining really means a lot of times financially sustaining it. And so the core question being, um, if you um, have exactly this kind of, um, you know, like like uh, in a way the, 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 the conundrum that, um, not not even a conundrum. You you have this kind of continuum between people saying, well, we want to have a certain social impact, and then others who say, I want to make a lot of money and I want to make a lot of profit. And I believe what we see is a divergence where we have more and more people who want to bring these two together, meaning and profit, but who um, a lot of times don't have the hard skills um, necessarily to do so, or um, or or other means, because usually, and that's what what um, we discussed uh, about earlier, that if we get more really good people, really good bankers, really good consultants into the social sector to say, let's make a really good business plan here that is financially sustainable, that is actually the best thing you can do to the social sector. So I feel um, in the end, the, the real issue in the social sector is that there's a certain judgment when it comes to profit. There's a certain um, idea that people who do good shouldn't be the ones who then make a lot of money with it. Whereas I feel um, the, there shouldn't be a problem with this because someone who really works hard and who's really good should make money with this. So um, I think what is changing now more and more is that you see more and more really good people trying to build enterprises. They don't call social enterprises. They call them enterprises, but in the end, they are much more impactful than social enterprises. So if you look at, I mean, look at all these different examples we have out there from 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 Zappos to Body Shop to um, whatever you have, where um, there's always elements where you could say, well, um, that's not 100% um, um, positive or, or impactful, but in the end, their social impact is probably much, much higher than the social impact of a social enterprise that focuses completely on social impact, but that in never never grows or never has a real, um, real, real, real um, financial um, um, sustainability. So um, to make that, that answer short, I think it's um, a lot about getting to the point to say that profit is increasingly immensely important to actually make a social venture sustainable. It's really about um, getting um, particularly this kind of mindset that it is not bad. I think that, you know, I feel that a lot of the discussion is, is, is again, very normative in the sense that um, when you are a social entrepreneur, you shouldn't make too much money. That is misappropriation of funds. Well, maybe it's just a good way to actually keep the best people in the sector. So, yeah. 
it's a complex issue, but certainly uh, the seeing the the role that 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 the profit can play in sustainability, I think, is sounds like it's increasingly important. And I suppose in connection with that as well, there is also the the question of building relationships with mainstream profitable companies and large companies and large corporations and so forth. Do you think there's an untapped potential there? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think on two levels, um, I think there's. Um, a, a huge potential to work with large organizations to restructure them. So I think uh, big organizations can learn a lot from social enterprises in terms of how to bring in the right value frames, genuine values, bring in a certain accountability, bring in kind of different types of key performance uh, measures that, that could also be a bit more social focused, so really integrating social into the business models of, of, of big companies. I mean, if you get a multinational like Cisco to um, adopt some more social goals, uh, that is obviously an, 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 a huge scale from day one, um, while it is obviously a, a long way to, to get to that point. While on the other hand, I think for social enterprises, um, when you look at, I think someone who did it really well was uh, Yunus um, with, uh, I don't know if you if you saw this whole Grameen ecosystem he built. So he started, what was that, 20, 30 years ago with a microfinance bank, the Grameen Bank. And then um, after and after he built so many social enterprises in joint ventures, um, everything from now joint ventures with Danone, where they build, they, they, they produce yogurt for uh, Bangladeshi um, 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 citizens or, or, or others, where um, he was really clever to draw together the social and the, um, the multinationals um, for, for obvious reasons. Well, the, the first reason being that social entrepreneurs a lot of times have the ideas, but multinationals have the resources. Um, but more importantly, also because both can learn a lot from each other and both, you know, talking about marketing and talking about um, these different things, um, for someone like Danone, there's nothing more interesting than to say um, we work for with someone who actually puts some meaning to work. When you're a, a 25 or, or 30-year-old um, high-profile graduate working for Danone in Paris and you produce your... Uh, 20,000 yogurt and sell that to the, the, the 40 year old housewife in, in, in Paris. That's probably not the most inspiring thing to do. And that's probably something where you, your productivity is relatively limited because in the evenings you think about, okay, what could I do with my life afterwards? Whereas if you now work with a Grameen and say, this yogurt actually makes a difference because it goes to the areas where this is a nutritional benefit, which keeps people alive that it completely redefines the purpose of this job. So I feel for multinationals, it's really interesting um, to, to work with social enterprises to put a bit more meaning to what they do and for social enterprises to um, yeah, kind of get access to the resources um, at a much bigger scale. I think that the core challenges obviously are um, related to that it is a very different language spoken. Um, there are very different kind of um, 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 goals at play, obviously, but... Um, I, I believe these boundary spanners that are able to bridge the two are the ones that usually um, are, are the most interesting ones. But what about just ch- changing uh, gears here a little bit, your own personal experience? I mean, obviously, you, 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 you were involved in setting up Sandbox and so forth. I mean, what inspires you, Christian, when, you know, when things are difficult? What, what, what inspires you? Well, I'm always, um, and that's the reason why, why um, I'm, I'm so excited about the Activities here, here um, at the Innovation Lab, particularly, um, which are a lot about um, business models in resource-constrained environments. Something that really fascinates me is when you have someone in a slum somewhere in Kibera in, in in Kenya 
who has literally nothing, no resources, um, no, no, no guidance, um, who's literally written off by society. And then who says, well, but I have this one idea here and I want to make this idea happen. And I believe I can, I can make it. And then comes up with an idea which then kind of develops into, um, a, a business model which then develops into something bigger. Um, so I feel when I look at all these things from, um, mobile banking to, uh, sorry, mobile banking, um, uh, phone banking, uh, to, to microfinance to, to other fields where because there was no institutional framework there, people then say, well, um, then let's build a local uh, framework for it. If you look at something like, um, the, you know, this kind of M-Pesa type models where you say you um, transfer money from mobile phone to mobile phone where you don't really need a bank for that, that wouldn't come up in the West because in the West we have a certain banking system. So we would probably think much more incremental. We would think about, okay, how can we build a better teller machine or how can we now substitute the employee with a teller machine or these kind of things. But in, in Kenya, you would say, well, look, there is, we can't trust the banks here. We can't really work with the banks. So let's do it ourselves. Let's guarantee each other. Let's do kind of micro um, um, loan uh, type uh, arrangements among groups we trust and, and so on. So I, I feel very, very excited um, about people that have absolutely no resources, but then with their strong will and with their ingenuity, um, try to make something happen. Right. And and on the other side, the actual social entrepreneurs themselves. I mean, it's obviously uh, a subject which, you know, a few years ago, people you know didn't talk about social entrepreneurs. And now there's so much more awareness and so many more young people really driven to have an impact and thinking about that. Where do you see the the evolution in the next few years of the whole sector? I mean, what do you think's happening? Well, I, I feel one of the indicators I see is when I when I look at some of the interesting people and in, in, in who are considered you know interesting social entrepreneurs. So let's say for example some Ashoka fellows, you know, who were kind of regarded as the ones who really kind of had a scaled impact. You know what's really interesting when you talk to many of them is um, that they would tell you, well, I, I'm not really a social entrepreneur. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. And then someone came to me and, and told me, okay, you're a social entrepreneur. And then well, since then we went with it, but. I think where, where it's really going is that the really interesting entrepreneurs um, are the ones that see a problem and they solve that problem. And then if they get labeled social entrepreneurs, that's great. Um, if they get labeled tech entrepreneurs, they get labeled tech entrepreneurs. But I feel um, what we see, really see emerging is that if you look at particularly the millennial generation, so they're kind of 20 to 31-year-olds 30, that, um, again, want to combine this meaning and profit, I think they want to build organizations, they want to build products that are somehow interesting, meaningful, but also make a certain profit. And I think what we will see is a, a convergence of traditional enterprises and social enterprises, where we say um, in 20 years from now, um, for a company like Cisco or for a company like, like, like Danone, it is not an option anymore to not have a social impact integrated in the business model because local communities will not accept that anymore. You will not be able to um, sell your stuff if you're not really embedded in the local ecosystems and, and so on. So I feel um, where it definitely, um, in, in my feeling, goes to is this kind of impact organization um, where you say people will after and after try to 
take the best practice from the traditional business sector and say, how can we make business models here that are sustainable financially? And then take the best practice from the social sector and say, well, how can we understand what really it means to cater to local communities, what it really means to have social, not only as a means, but really as an end, and and to make that. So I think um, when you look at the, the, the discussion in the, in the social sector, um, I don't know, like this, this Michael Porter, for example, with this shared value um, um, thing where it was still about how do I get a traditional corporation to, um, you know, enhance their profit by being social. I think that is really still a very old discussion because I think the new discussion will be how do we actually get enterprise to understand that in the end, um, people usually misread Smith a few hundred years ago when they thought that everything should be about profit. I mean, in an organization, when you look at most middle-sized companies in Germany, you know, and a company is there to cater not only to the shareholders, but it's there to cater to society. It's there to cater to employees. So um, I think we have to really um, see that there is a generation emerging that questions the whole idea that a company should be for profit. Um, it, it basically says, look, of course there should be a profit because that's what's needed, but there should be a certain idea that it caters to employees, that it caters to um, to society Otherwise, why would we actually build it? And I think that is kind of a, a huge shift in mindset, um, which will see much more integrated models combining financial and, and social impact. Some people say, you know, that in the future, there's, that the term social enterprise might not exist, or at least they frame it like that, that maybe in 20 years time, when all organizations are 15 years, 10 or 15 years time, where more and more organizations are, are, are have, you know, embraced social values, that the idea of being a social enterprise, you know, it, it won't have any meaning, because hopefully the ideas will have been more broadly adopted. Yeah, being very honest with you, Fergal, I think I'm, 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 I'm very, very certain. I mean, having talked also, uh, you know, what's really interesting is even when you talk to the CEOs of, of banks or the CEOs of big multinationals, one thing they really want to do is to, to make their businesses more social, but they get a lot of backlash from shareholders, particularly. But the point is that I think you have a lot more um, enlightened leadership already emerging. So give it 10, 20 years and you will see these big organizations shifting more and more. And I think also, um, I'm, I'm very convinced that we will see, um, particularly out of, out of, out of this generation, 20 to 30 year olds, a lot of impact entrepreneurs that really say, let's make profit. Let's, let's, let's make social. So I completely, I'm completely with you there that I think, um, the, the, the term social enterprise already now is almost redundant, but I think it will be completely redundant in 20 years when you will see that we have responsible businesses or we have irresponsible businesses. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it. And I know that the the, the, the whole question of uh, this idea of the fiduciary role of an organization to maximize profits for shareholders, I think that's a big challenge, that whole idea. And that needs to be confronted, I think, in some way um, and dealt with. It forces companies down a particular path. And there are, there are certain kinds of uh, managers who say, oh, we're legally obliged to maximize profits. And I find that a very damning kind of attitude. Absolutely, completely agree. And I think it's also something, it's really interesting because I feel when you look at um, kind of countries like, I mean, Scandinavian countries, um, I'm, I'm, I'm from Germany, so I, I've seen the German model where it's, where it's you know, it, it, it always was less about shareholder capitalism than it was about stakeholder capitalism. Mm-hmm. It was all about, you know, I mean, employees were a lot of times more important than shareholders. Um, you would have employee representatives on the mm. board and these kind of questions very strongly represented. And I feel, um, you know, 
I think like a lot of the medium-sized enterprises in Germany, I would consider much more healthy actually than um, some of the social enterprises we see here in, in the Anglo-Saxon context. So I feel, um, I, in, in my perspective, when looking at the social sector, um, I think there's a lot of um, kind of um, um, patting each other on the back and mm. like saying, okay, well, we're so social and we do so much great stuff. But when you look at the actual impact in terms of creating jobs, creating meaningful lives for people, a lot of times these kind of stakeholder-oriented organizations are the ones that really do that. And then I think a lot of social entrepreneurs are very much in love with this idea of being social, but the question becomes, okay, but what is the actual impact you have here? And I feel um, we can learn a lot from these kind of very grounded um, enterprises, family-driven, you know, which over generations um, 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 aggregated not only wealth, but also a lot of responsibility and a lot of um, kind of taking care of employees and other stakeholders. So um, I feel that's definitely something where in Anglo-Saxon countries we will probably see um, a bit of a development, or hopefully yes yes that's a ending on, a, on an optimistic note there <laughs> christian no thank you that's been fascinating uh to talk to you and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today yeah absolute pleasure thank you for thank you for listening to the inspiring social entrepreneur podcast i hope you found this interview inspiring please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts